Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this presentation. At the conclusion of part one of this podcast, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, writer and poet, Charles Bukowski. Now let's begin our story about Charles Bukowski. It's hard to describe Charles Bukowski. He's been called a misanthrope, a misogynist, an alcoholic, a chauvinist, an ignorant vulgar brute, uncouth slob, an undeserving dilettante, all personality traits that he would probably accept and possibly even embrace. Nevertheless, his prose and poetry enjoy a form of popularity and cult worship that cannot be dismissed and that most 20th century American literary figures will never approach and can only envy from a distance. Wildly popular internationally, he remains completely unknown to vast numbers of Americans, despite his voluminous book sales, high-profile literary analysis, and even a popular Hollywood film that detailed aspects of his life. Personally, he had no illusions about his fan base. In a 1981 interview, he stated, So these are my readers, you see. They buy my books, the defeated, the demented, and the damned, and I am proud of it. Heinrich Karl Bukowski was born in Andernach, Germany, on August 16, 1920. Andernach is a small German town located on the Rhine River between Bonn and Koblenz. Bukowski's father, also named Heinrich Karl Bukowski, was a sergeant in the U.S. Army of Occupation following World War I. He met and impregnated Bukowski's mother, Katerina Fett, in late 1919, and their marriage would not occur until July of 1920, one month before the birth of their son. The young family spent the next three years in Germany and most likely would have remained there except for the economic crash that destroyed Bukowski Sr.'s prospects in the construction trade and prompted a return to the U.S. The Bukowskis settled briefly in Baltimore, where they anglicized their names before saving enough money to relocate to Los Angeles, where Bukowski's father was born and raised. Bukowski's paternal grandparents were separated, his grandfather a successful carpenter plagued by alcoholism. The extended family was quite dysfunctional, with siblings harboring deep resentment for each other. This dysfunction also plagued Bukowski's relationship with his father, who beat him from a young age and was generally cold and hostile. The family would come to reside in a typically modest home in a central Los Angeles neighborhood at 2122 Longwood Avenue. Bukowski spent a great deal of time describing his painful and difficult childhood, and he would refer to this address as the House of Agony. If he displeased his father in any way, he would ritualistically be whipped with a leather belt, his mother observing without a word of protest. Her failure to intervene would eventually alienate her son from her, but one wonders if her reluctance was the result of her own fear and intimidation at the hands of her husband, 
a situation that Bukowski referred to in his 1983 poem, A Smile to Remember. We had goldfish, and they circled around and around, in the bowl on the table near the heavy drapes, covering the picture window, and my mother, always smiling, wanting us all to be happy, told me, Be happy, Henry. And she was right. It's better to be happy if you can. But my father continued to beat her and me several times a week while raging inside of his six-foot-two frame because he couldn't understand what was attacking him from within. My mother, poor fish, wanting to be happy, beaten two or three times a week, telling me to be happy. Henry, smile. Why don't you ever smile? And then she would smile to show me how. And it was the saddest smile I ever saw. One day the goldfish died, all five of them. They floated on the water on their sides, their eyes still open. And when my father got home, he threw them to the cat there on the kitchen floor. And we watched as my mother smiled. Bukowski's adolescence was greatly influenced by a physical condition that remained evident for the rest of his life. His face and torso were plagued with what doctors described as one of the most severe cases of acne they had ever seen. The condition was so bad that these boil-sized infections would be lanced and drained, a treatment that contributed to the deep pitting and permanent scarring that gave Bukowski's complexion a lifelong and uniquely disconcerting countenance. Needless to say, Bukowski's condition did little to ingratiate him with schoolmates who either jeered or shunned him. In fact, Bukowski's condition was so severe that he was excused from his first semester of high school. It was 1936, the Great Depression was underway, and Bukowski's father was unemployed, the family supported by his mother's modest income generated as a seamstress. His father would spend his days leaving the house in early morning, attempting to deceive his neighbors into thinking that he was off to work. Most of the rest of the neighborhood was also unemployed, but his father's deception added another emotion to Bukowski's parental perception, contempt. Bukowski spent his days away from school immersing himself in books and fiction, a loner who spent as much time as he could reading in his bedroom. Bukowski attended Mount Vernon Junior High School and Los Angeles High School. Although today they are among the worst public schools in the U.S., in the mid-30s, these institutions educated the inhabitants of the wealthy section of Hancock Park, a fact not lost on Bukowski's socially aspiring parents. Besides his skin condition, Bukowski's lack of wealth and social standing only cemented his lonely status as an outsider who had few friends and did not even attend his senior prom. Bukowski graduated from high school in mid-1939, intent on continuing his education and finding employment. His enrollment at Los Angeles City College and job search would take him to downtown Los Angeles and his eventual discovery of the Los Angeles Public Library, where he would further immerse himself in books and literature. It would also let him indulge in a pastime that he began as a teenager, drinking in bars. Bukowski would land a job at Sears and Roebuck and enroll in a humanities and journalism-based curriculum at L.A. City College. Eventually, he would quit the job and drop out of school, behavior that only intensified his parents' hostility. Already attempting to write short stories, 
Bukowski's dysfunctional relationship with his parents would reach a crescendo when they discovered these efforts, and his father tossed his clothes, stories, and typewriter onto the front lawn. Most likely attempting to emulate his literary hero, John Fonte, a Los Angeles-based writer he had discovered in the stacks of the downtown public library, Bukowski first moved to the Bunker Hill neighborhood near downtown, and then, after six months of menial jobs, set out for the road. He intended to pursue a drifter's life, earning just enough to allow him to rent some hole in the wall where he would spend as much free time as possible writing stories. He traveled to various cities across America, including New Orleans, Atlanta, St. Louis, and San Francisco. Most importantly, he would publish his first story, Aftermath of a Lengthy Rejection Slip, for the prestigious Story magazine, a publication that featured several unknown but ultimately prominent writers. Bukowski was elated by this career breakthrough and even journeyed to New York City in the spring of 1944 to be able to purchase the magazine as soon as possible. Ultimately, he was disappointed when the story was published in the notes section and presumed that his work was being sarcastically diminished. He briefly remained in New York but disliked the city and eventually moved on to Philadelphia. It was in the city of brotherly love that Bukowski would live the lifestyle later depicted in the film Barfly. Becoming comfortable in a downtown dive where he earned free drinks and a few dollars running errands for the patrons, Bukowski would occasionally fight the bartender in the alley for the amusement of the other drunks. He rented a room nearby, and it was to this location that FBI agents knocked on his door in July of 1944 to inquire as to why he hadn't reported for the draft. Bukowski correctly explained that he had been classified as 4F, but he had not notified the draft board of his current address and was hauled off to the infamous Moyamensing prison, where he remained before he again flunked a psychiatric evaluation that declared him unfit for military service. Despite the wartime patriotic fervor, Bukowski remained unabashedly unapologetic about his disdain for this or any other military conflict. Later he would write, My objection to war was not that I had to kill somebody or be killed senselessly. That hardly mattered. What I objected to was to be denied the right to sit in a small room and starve and drink cheap wine and go crazy in my own way and at my own leisure. Bukowski would enjoy another success in 1946 with the publication of 20 Tanks from Castledown, published in the prestigious Portfolio magazine in an issue which contained works from Jean Genet, Henry Miller, Garcia Lorca, and Sartre. Although he maintained that he was already immersed in a decade-long drinking bout in which he abandoned his writing, in fact, Bukowski had returned to Los Angeles and spent approximately two years living with his parents. He would move out again allegedly when his father, employed as an L.A. County museum guard, brought his son's latest published work to the museum and passed it off as his own. As both individuals had the same name, this simple subterfuge earned Bukowski senior respect and a promotion and a final disgusted severance from his son, who again moved to a rooming house in downtown L.A. It was here at age 27 that Bukowski would experience his first romance with a woman 11 years older that he met in a dive bar near his rented room. Jane Cooney Baker was an alcoholic who survived on the generosity of bar patrons and frequently subsequently sleeping with same. She would shack up with Bukowski in a succession of apartments, 
only to be evicted with him after their inevitable conflict and property destruction. Their unstable lifestyle was depicted in Bukowski's 1973 poem, A Radio with Guts. It was on the second floor on Coronado Street. I used to get drunk and throw the radio through the window while it was playing, and of course, it would break the glass in the window, and the radio would sit there on the roof, still playing. And I'd tell my woman, ah, what a marvelous radio. The next morning, I'd take the window off the hinges and carry it down the street to the glass man who would put in another pane. I kept throwing that radio through the window each time I got drunk, and it would sit there on the roof, still playing. A magic radio, a radio with guts. And each morning I'd take the window back to the glass man. I don't remember how it ended exactly, though I do remember we finally moved out. There was a woman downstairs who worked in the garden in her bathing suit. She really dug with that trowel, and she put her behind up in the air, and I used to sit in the window and watch the sun shine all over that thing while the music played. Bukowski would continue his pattern of working in menial jobs, writing both prose and poetry in his off time, and drinking with his girlfriend. Jane's habit of disappearing while he was at work and partying with other men only added to the couple's fiery relationship. It was during this time period, beginning in 1950, that Bukowski would start working for the U.S. Post Office. Although this steady work would allow him some degree of stability, it would also enable him to continue to consume vast quantities of alcohol that in 1955 ultimately led to a bleeding ulcer and his admission to the L.A. County Hospital. The Bukowski legend states that with no medical insurance, he would have died without a transfusion, but it was discovered that his father had blood bank credit, and so Bukowski was saved. Unlike the writer's future stories, that depicted him as emerging from the hospital and immediately beginning to heavily consume alcohol, he apparently abided by advice he received from his doctors who told him that such behavior would be fatal. Searching for an alternative way to spend his free time, it was Jane Cooney Baker who suggested that they hit Hollywood Park racetrack. While Bukowski would eventually gradually return to abusing alcohol, he would also continue to visit the track on an almost daily basis for the rest of his life. Bukowski became so enamored with the horses that he eventually decided to quit his post office job to attempt to support himself as a horse player, a decision that resulted in a predictable outcome. He was soon not only broke, but Jane Cooney Baker left him after she was forced to get a job to support them both and decided that he was cheating on her while she worked. Desperate, Bukowski agreed to marry a woman who had published his poems, Barbara Fry, a Texan who accepted his proposal via letter. Having never met each other, the two journeyed to Las Vegas and were married on October 29, 1955. Although Bukowski and Fry would continue to publish Fry's poetry journal Harlequin, the marriage would be brief. Bukowski's wife's attempts to get her husband a respectable trade as a commercial artist and to encourage his further education foundered and he reverted to menial jobs and slacking off around the house. He also tired of what he believed to be Barbara's affected ways, and the couple divorced in March of 1958. He went back to work at the post office, moved to the gritty East Hollywood area of the city, and continued to flail away at the typewriter. He had little contact with his parents. His mother would die of cancer on Christmas Eve 1956, and his father, still employed at the museum, died of a heart attack only two years later. Bukowski inherited about $15,000 from his father's estate, which he bragged that he blew at the track and on booze, 
just to spite his old man, but most of his acquaintances believe that he was quite careful with the money, thinking of it as a grub stake for his writing career. Bukowski was enjoying a modest success with his poetry and in October 1960 published a poetry collection chapbook, a cheap paper-bound volume entitled Flower Fist and Bestial Whale. 28 pages long and only 200 copies printed, but at the age of 40, the author had published his first book. He would also sporadically spend time with Jane Cooney Baker, now employed as a flophouse hotel maid and deep in the throes of terminal alcoholism that eventually precipitated her death from cirrhosis and cancer in January of 1962. Her passing would affect Bukowski greatly, prompted not only by grief, but also by guilt for not being more attentive. She would become one of several inspirations for his characterizations of women that would appear throughout his work. 1962 found Bukowski holed up in a gritty Mariposa Avenue apartment, composing material that was edgier and more profane than ever. He would take extended leaves from the post office and attempt to make money at the racetrack. And after these sabbaticals ended, he needed to return to his graveyard shift's clerk's job at the huge general mail facility in downtown Los Angeles. Here, starting at 6.30 p.m., he would sort mail sitting in a booth and sticking envelopes into various designated slots until 2.30 in the morning, his work schedule consisting of two consecutive work weeks followed by four days off. But this tedious and physically demanding occupation allowed him to pursue his two other main interests, the racetrack and writing. 1963 brought two major developments in Bukowski's life. The first involved the publication by John and Gypsy Lou Webb of a limited edition of Bukowski's poems in an artistically beautiful bound volume entitled It Catches My Heart in Its Hands. The Webbs previously published Bukowski's work in their beat poetry journal The Outsider, based in New Orleans. For this book, the two utilized an ancient printing press, hand-fed one page at a time to produce a result that left Bukowski ecstatic. Each copy of the book was also personally signed by the author in silver ink. Although the volume of Bukowski's correspondence with women would increase with his subsequent fame and notoriety, his personal life was greatly affected by a letter he received in the spring of 1963. A woman named Frances Dean wrote to him, explained that she was divorced, recently relocated to Garden Grove, California, and interested in meeting him. Bukowski responded by calling her at midnight while drunk and demanding that she come and visit, insisting that this had to be done immediately. Francis took a Greyhound bus to downtown L.A. and a cab to Bukowski's Mariposa apartment. They clicked enough for the couple to attend the races at Santa Anita the following afternoon. Francis was pushing 40, the mother of four children she left behind in Michigan, but a kindred spirit who wrote her own poetry and was bored with her middle-class existence. The two began a romantic relationship, which culminated in Francis becoming pregnant in late 1963. Not sure as to whether she wanted to have another child, she initially hid this news from Bukowski, but ultimately informed him of the impending birth. He responded by proposing marriage, but she refused. Instead, they would move to another East Hollywood apartment on DeLongpre Avenue and live together with their infant daughter, Marina, born September 7, 1964. This small tribe rented one of the four bungalows situated near each other in the 5,000 block of DeLongpre the end dwelling closest to the street. Because the landlord couple owned all of the buildings outright, the rent was reasonable and the atmosphere tolerant. 
In the mid-60s, this was a relatively nondescript neighborhood that even today remains hard scrabble and working class. While the new residence was fine, it quickly became clear that Bukowski and Francis, now calling herself Francie E., would not last under the same roof. He was critical of her idealistic ways and her social circle, which he labeled phony Hollywood types. He was also frustrated with his lack of progress in assembling quality poems for the next effort that would be produced by the Webbs, and he was not particularly pleasant to live with. Possibly to get away from this tense domestic environment, Bukowski traveled to New Orleans, to the Webb's roach-infested French Quarter apartment, to assist with the publication of his second poetry collection entitled Crucifix in a Death Hand. Bukowski returned to Los Angeles, the book successfully completed, but his domestic life in shambles. He ignored his wife's attempt to encourage activity with her and their child, instead either drinking heavily in the DeLongpre apartment or repairing to nearby bars alone. His other free time was spent on writing before heading off to work at the post office. In late November 1965, the couple split up, a development initiated by Bukowski but ultimately amenable to his partner, who was already considering such a move herself. Years later, she would comment that when sober, Bukowski was a decent citizen who dressed up to go to the post office every day. But when drunk, he was verbally combative, even to those that he respected or liked. He wanted a happy woman singing in the kitchen. That wasn't me. It was at about this time that Charles Bukowski's life would be dramatically changed by the efforts of one individual who became convinced that the writer was an especially gifted artist. John Martin was a non-drinking Christian scientist who managed an office supply company and, after exchanging letters with Bukowski, decided to visit the writer at his DeLongpre bungalow. With Francie E. moved out, the place had deteriorated into a frightful mess, but amidst the chaos were stacks of poetry that Martin asked to read. Within minutes, Martin asked to take some of the poems with him and promised to pay Bukowski to print them in a small press collection he was thinking of publishing. His subsequent modest effort, under the banner of Black Sparrow Press, would be the first collaboration between the two, an effort that would radically transform Bukowski's career. Martin financed his new venture by selling his valuable collection of D.H. Lawrence first editions and sinking this money into Black Sparrow. Bukowski also began writing a column for the underground Los Angeles newspaper Open City, an effort entitled Notes of a Dirty Old Man. These weekly efforts were frequently autobiographical or sexual in nature and greatly increased the writer's visibility in L.A. With Black Sparrow regularly publishing material and a provocative weekly column, Bukowski was approaching regional minor celebrity. His relationship with his publisher Martin also didn't suffer from the hostility Bukowski frequently evinced while intoxicated because the two never drank together. Unfortunately, Bukowski's literary efforts were not appreciated by his employers at the post office, who found his work repulsive and possibly subversive. But for the moment, they confined their discipline to interrogations as to his beliefs and admonishments to omit the post office from his future columns. By 1969, Bukowski was well known enough to generate interest at Zappel Records, a literary subsidiary of the Beatles-financed Apple Records. Barry Miles was the manager of this effort, and he put Bukowski on a list of poets and writers to be recorded reading their work. Miles would journey to the West Coast and provide Bukowski with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and audio tape, which the writer quickly filled up with material and off-the-cuff commentary. 
None of the Beatles even knew who Bukowski was, but they entrusted Miles to put together a worthy group of subjects. Unfortunately, the Beatles' breakup ended Zappel, and it would not be until 1997 when this effort was released independently on CD. In late 1969, a fundamental myth about the career of Charles Bukowski was created that maintained that he bravely left the post office after John Martin offered Bukowski $100 a month to quit and fully devote himself to his art. In truth, Bukowski had already been disciplined for absenteeism for months and was involved in the lengthy process of official termination. But Martin did offer the writer the money, a quarter of his own monthly income, to allow Bukowski to write full-time. As monumental as this development was, Martin also casually suggested that the writer take a crack at a novel. Initially, Bukowski was overwhelmed by the euphoria of not having to report to work at the Postal Annex. He spent the month of December 1969 in a lengthy binge with friends that lasted through New Year's Eve and then tossed everyone out. After sleeping off a titanic hangover for two days, he sat down at his typewriter on January 2, 1970, age 49, and began his first novel. He would complete it in approximately three weeks, astonishing his publisher Martin with the manuscript that grew out of an aside. The book, entitled Post Office, was an autobiographical account of Bukowski's struggle with his life and postal employment, and the various fictionalized characters and lovers who were part of his world. Concise, humorous, poignant, and deeply cynical, it was the first of several novels that would establish Bukowski as an international literary star. A typical passage concerned the difficulty of dealing with a new route every day as a sub for the regular postal carriers. Every route had its traps, and only the regular carriers knew of them. Each day it was another goddamn thing, and you were always ready for a rape, murder, dogs, or insanity of some sort. The regulars wouldn't tell you their little secrets. That was the only advantage they had, except knowing their case by heart. It was gung-ho for a new man, especially one who drank all night, went to bed at 2 a.m., rose at 4.30 a.m. after screwing and singing all night long, and almost, almost getting away with it. One night I was out on the street and the route was going well, though it was a new one, and I thought, Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time in two years, I'll be able to eat lunch. I had a terrible hangover, but still all went well until I came to this handful of mail addressed to a church. The address had no street number, just the name of the church and the boulevard it faced. I walked, hung over, up the steps. I couldn't find a mailbox in there and no people in there. Some candles burning, little bowls to dip your fingers in, and the empty pulpit looking at me, and all the statues, pale red and blue and yellow, the transom shut, a stinking hot morning. Oh, Jesus Christ, I thought, and walked out. I went around to the side of the church and found a stairway going down. I went in through the open door. Do you know what I saw? A row of toilets and showers, but it was dark. All the lights were out. How in hell can they expect a man to find a mailbox in the dark? Then I saw the light switch. I threw the thing and the lights in the church went on, inside and out. I walked into the next room and there were priest robes spread out on a table. There was a bottle of wine. For Christ's sakes, I thought, who in hell but me would ever get caught in a scene like this? I picked up the bottle of wine, had a good drag, left the letters on the robes, and walked back to the showers and toilets. I turned off the lights and took a shit in the dark and smoked a cigarette. I thought about taking a shower, but I could see the headlines. Mailman caught drinking the blood of God and taking a shower naked in Roman Catholic Church. 
So finally, I didn't have time for lunch. And when I got in, John Stone wrote me up for being 23 minutes off schedule. I found out later that mail for the church was delivered to the parish house around the corner. But now, of course, I'll know where to shit and shower when I'm down and out. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Charles Bukowski. Much of the information for this podcast came from Locked in the Arms of a Crazy Life by Howard Sounds and Charles Bukowski by Barry Miles. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.